Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Hi, folks, and welcome to Extra Helpings for Season 6, Episodes 426. And you took us to the Arctic, didn't you, Paul? That's right, Mikey, but actually, it's you who've got the story to round us out. Yes, mate, and it's about that famed explorer, Roald Amundsen. Yes. Well, I I should point out, I was taught to pronounce his name Amundsen when I was at school, but it's Amundsen. Amundsen, yes. Amundsen. Right, okay. Well, yes, he was a great explorer. They had the Northwest Passage, first guy to the South Pole. Yes, but we often overlook some of the odder things he did. <laughs> okay. So not quite as successful. In fact, the 1920 expedition up into the Arctic on the Maud. Mm. Well, on this expedition, the crew shot and killed a female bear. Mm. Probably the same bear that was actually attacking Roald at the time. A he polar bear. Yeah, a polar bear. He did, not, he did not have a good trip. He broke several bones, went through the ice a couple of times. <laughs> he almost died of carbon monoxide poisoning. And then there was the bear attack. So they killed the bear and... It had a young cub. Mm. Now, the young cub, well, this is where it gets weird, mate. The young cub was captured with the intention of being trained. Trained? Tra- yeah, trained to the point where in Amazon's way of thinking, it could replace dogs as sleigh animals. Right. The animal was christened Mary. Mm. Amundsen even wrote in his journal, the relationship between Mary and me is getting even better. <laughs> But things did not work out well, mate. You have to remember, polar bears... I actually had a, a zookeeper tell me this once. Polar bears cannot be trained. Right. And the poor creature eventually had attacked him mm. and sadly had to be chloroformed. And, but she was stuffed and you can still see it today in, in a museum just south of Oslo. Okay. A testament to the great explorer being deeply, deeply wrong. But here's <laughs> the thing that makes it even weirder, mate. This was not a fresh brain explosion from him. Mm. In 1907... Norwegian newspapers had been writing about Roald and a German animal trainer called Karl Heigenbeck. Mm. Now, Heigenbeck even went so far as to say that not only the bears he was training, and these were probably brown and black bears, Mm. not only would they make great pack animals, but it was also his intention to train them to sleep alongside the explorers in the tents to provide them with warmth and something comfy to cuddle up against at night. <laughs> Apart from the claws. Yeah. Amundsen abandons the idea after theorising that once well-trained, the bears might just become too soft to thrive in the harsh Arctic conditions. So 13 years before the Maud, he knew this wasn't possible, but he still had to give it another go. <laughs> Actually, if we are talking about Amundsen and giving it a go, there's another <laughs> thing about him as well. Look, he never married. Nothing wrong with that. Yep. But for his, his entire life, he moved from one adulterous relationship to another. He had a bit of a kink for married women. Which brings us to our episode about invasive species. Mm. And, Paulie, I've got a feeling you're about to go outdoors. Yeah, that's right. We did get quite a few tweets on this one, didn't we, Mikey? Largely falling into two camps. Um, the first, a bit tongue-in-cheek, but they did actually ask me if my favourite peak district in the north of England, did it actually have any peaks? Yes, I know, very funny. England's peaks are <laughs> a bit more hills than mountains, I grant you. But, you know, compared to Wales, which highest top has a train line to take you up to it, and in Australia you can drive a car 
far to the top of Australia's highest peak. Compared to that, I suppose I don't really feel too bad. But more importantly, the other comments, they asked me if I could delve a little further into the history of the Peak District as a national park, because as quite a few of you rightly pointed out, this is a park that has in itself been a significant part of history. You see, you remember in the ep I was talking about those roaches, the, the, the ridge of rocks with the mob of wallabies made their home for over 50 years? Well, they're just to the south, southeast of my hometown, Macclesfield. But if you go the other way, northeast, you're into the same Peak District National Park, but now you're heading towards Edale, the start of the Pennine Way, and a small hill called Kinder Scout. Now, that's actually one of my favourite places in the world, Mikey, and somewhere where I used to go quite a lot as a kid. And it's home, you might be surprised to hear, to one of the few waterfalls in the world. Because of the wind, it's so strong coming off of the moors. One of the few waterfalls I've ever witnessed where you'll see the water going up instead of going down. Well, that's worth the hike. All right, but back to the main history. Now, as we've said, yeah, the north of England, it wasn't just a cradle of the Industrial Revolution. It also gave rise to all sorts of cultural upheavals, you know, particularly the Peak District itself, because this is the scene of one of the most famous of them all, the mass trespass of Kinder Scout in 1932. Now, I'm not sure if you've heard about this one, Mike. No, but, I haven't, mate. But it was organised by a guy called Benny Rothman. He was the secretary of the British Workers' Sports Federation. And him, along with a, some of the members of the Young Communists, they launched what in many ways marks the first campaign for the right to roam. Oh, those people you English call the Ramblers. The Ramblers, right. Of course, in the back in the 30s, all these Ramblers, or most of them, were workers in the Manchester area. And they were protesting that all these beautiful hills and moors right on their doorstep... They were essentially locked out from ever entering them or enjoying so much as a morning hike. You see, all the rich English landowners, they barred the hoi polloi from sullying their nice open fields or, of course, disturbing the precious grouse and pheasants on their shooting moors. Or if they did allow entry, they charged the poor townspeople for the pleasure. You know, remember we were talking in that episode about the guy, Lord Brocklehurst, uh, Courtney's elder brother. Well, he used to charge a shilling to visitors wanting to enter Ludd's Church on his property, which is this beautiful, deep, incredible chasm, a sort of cleft in the gritstone rock where people from as long back as the Lollards had come to meet and enjoy the enchantment. And he'd also charge half a crown to anyone who just wanted to walk or rock climb on the roaches. Hang on, half a crown back in the 1930s, that's quite a bit of money. Yeah, that's real money. So it's 1932, 24th of April, and Benny Rothman, he coordinates various groups of workers and ramblers to trespass their way onto the land and meet on Kinder Scout at a spot called Ashup Head. Now, you know, it's quite a stretch out of Manchester to get there. Some took buses, some took bikes, some walked all the way. But the main thing is, Mikey, they were successful and a victorious day was had by all. But on the return, they were met with some violent scuffles, particularly with the gamekeepers. You know, they were coming back into town. Six ramblers are arrested and detained. Now, the thing is, in the 30s, trespass was not, and in fact still not, a criminal offence. It was a civil offence in England. But the landowners put the squeeze onto the police so that these six had been arrested and detained. They would actually receive jail sentences of up to two to six months. And they could do that by instead of charging them with trespassing, they can charge them with violence against the keepers. But fortunately, Mikey, the outcry was so great that the landowners were forced to back down. And now that one set of workers knew that they could go walking on the moors, the genie was really out of the bottle. So the government decreed that, yes, workers should be allowed to enjoy the benefits of the countryside amongst which they've been brought up. And the rest, as they say in Northern England, is history. (laughs) 
So we were talking about invasive species, and we left out one particularly infamous tale, the tale of the cocaine hippos. Ah, yes. They were brought to Colombia and South America by the drug lord Pablo Escobar mm. around about 1979-1980. He somehow smuggled four into the country to be part of his illegal zoo mm. on the notorious Hacienda estate. Mm. You would have seen that Narcos. And yeah, on Pat- Netflix, yes. I mean, this estate boasted a sprawling Spanish mansion, a private airport, Lush lawns, gardens, several pools, a man-made lake, as well as his own race car track. <laughs> but the zoo, it, well, well, the zoo, mate, it contained over 200 animals, elephants and rhinos, exotic birds, all the usual suspects, mm-hmm. or even a couple of lions, and four hippos that he had smuggled into Colombia. Although how anyone smuggles one hippo, let alone <laughs> four, is beyond me. But hey, when you're the world's richest drug trafficker, I think you know a thing or two about smuggling. <laughs> But the thing is, when Pablo's killed in the mid-90s in Bogota, mm. his estate was seized. And all the animals found homes in other zoos and parks, except the hippos. Mm. As Colombian biologist Natalie Casablanco stated, it was just too logistically difficult to move them around. Ah. So the authorities just left them there, thinking the poor hippos would die. Die off. But they didn't. By most calculations, there were somewhere around... a. 120 feral hippos in Colombia, South America, Mm. in the wild by the middle of 2021, making them obviously the largest hippo herd in the world outside of Africa. Right. And they reckon that if left unchecked, those numbers could be set to explode. See, unlike Africa, the Colombian hippos have no natural predators. In Africa, crocs will attack and eat hippo calves. But moreover, they've got the weather on their side. Mm-hmm. Back in Africa, frequent dry spells and droughts keep hippo populations in check. Yes. But the wet jungles and rivers of Colombia, well, they don't dry out. <laughs> no. And this is proving to be such a good habitat that it actually seems that, well, to be frank, these cocaine hippos are starting to breed at a much younger age. <laughs> now, scientists will say the greatest problem caused by the hippos, I mean, apart from the fact they shouldn't be there, <laughs> is their poo. Ah. I mean, not just the damage they do to the environment, but... Hippos make a lot of poo, mate, to the point where they could seriously impact the chemical composition of the waterways, mm. which could lead to devastating algae blooms. Wow. But the problem is, what's well, sort of ironic, just as Pablo Escobar was a narco-dealing psychopath who murdered and kidnapped his way into wealth, but was seen as a benevolent Robin Hood character by the peasants of yeah. Medellin and even in wider Colombia, so too the hippos have become... They become popular with the Colombians. Ah. In fact, uh, Dr. Casablanco, who I mentioned before, I'm going to quote her here. Some people in Colombia can get very angry when they talk about the hippos. <laughs> people tend to understand much more about invasive species when we talk about plants or smaller creatures instead of a massive animal that, well, many find cute. <laughs> Plus, many struggling farmers have made quite a good living on the side taking tourists on hippo spotting tours. <laughs> hippo safari. Exactly, mate. And then it gets weirder. When one aggressive hippo, which had been obviously named Pepe, was killed by the Colombian army in 2009, such was the outcry by the locals that the authorities had these cocaine hippos legally protected. And then it gets even stranger. Some environmentalists are also calling for their protection. I know. With one saying that they aren't African anymore, they're now Colombian, which is a quite a spurious argument. Mm. Then there's this other argument, which is, well, we should keep this population in Colombia in case the ones in Africa ever die out. Mm. Now, there are two species of hippos that are quite endangered, but they are not the species that you find, <laughs> obviously, in Colombia. Then there's also this really strange argument that the hippos might actually fill a 
post-late Pleistocene void left by extinct giant llamas. Extinct giant llamas? Yes, mate. They say that these hippos might actually restore the environment. Um, I think there's quite a bit of debate on that theory. Then things get a little odd in 2021. Mm. A US federal court... Well, there was a ruling which recognised the cocaine hippos as legal persons. Okay, before everyone gets their heckles up about wokeism gone mad, mm. there's method to the madness. The non-profit Animal League Defence Fund filed an affidavit, and look, I'm not going to go all legal on you here, but here's the skinny. Obviously, the culls were unpopular, and in some areas, they were illegal. So, how about sterilisation? Well, as you might imagine, Paul... Surgically castrating a 1,700-kilogram male hippo is not only dangerous, it's extremely expensive and yeah. almost damn near impossible because, well, hippo testes can be rather hard to locate. They're, they're internal. Don't ask me how I know. Just, just take my word for it. So although a rather complicated legal argument, its, it's long-term goal was to protect the hippos whilst further research and experimentation could be done into chemical sterilisation. Look, it's a tragic situation. The hippos didn't ask to be there, and there is ample evidence of the environmental damage they are doing. And also, too, that will get worse if the numbers grow. All right, and just to round out that uh, invasive species episode, Mikey, obviously we mentioned a couple of the worst ones in Australia then, and we know a few of you do love your Aussie history, and of course, you know, we're not the only podcast out there, so if you fancy doubling down a bit and delving deeper into Australian history, you might want to have a listen to another podcast we've come across the australian histories podcast and that, that's on at Hist pod at Hist pod we'll put the link on all the socials because we think you might enjoy it which brings us to episode six in our series and one i found particularly fascinating the Khazars. now i've got to ask a question mate after their empire folds what happened to them well that's it we've been asked that question by a few people haven't we mike yeah where did the Khazars disappear to? You know, did they disperse after the fall of the empire? Or did they convert for a second time, perhaps to Islam under the Golden Horde? Or maybe even to Christianity and form you know, the basis for the Cossacks, who had become so influential in what is now the Ukraine? Some people have even argued that they might be related to the Kosango Catholics of Moldova and Romania. But the likelihood is that they did stick with their Jewish faith and in which case they could well have formed the basis for the Karaite Jews of Crimea, who are still there, maybe even the Bukharan Jews of Central Asia, or even the Mountain Jews and the Subutniks, who are these sort of breakaway Jewish sects that we still find in southern Russia to this day. But the main debate, Mikey, seems to centre around one particular issue, and that's about the colour of their hair. Really? Because the Khazars, you see, they are often associated with a group which has gone down in history as the red-haired Jews. So the inhabitants of uh, Khazaria... Were they red-haired, were they? Well, yes, Mikey, it appears they were. According to a Hispanic Arab historian, the geographer El Maghribi in the 13th century, he wrote that, and I'm quoting here, their complexions are white, their eyes blue, their hair flowing and predominantly reddish, their bodies large and their natures cold, their general aspect is wild. All right. And this is backed up by other contemporary historians who often separate the Khazars into white Khazars, the Ak Khazars, and the black Khazars, the Kara Khazars. And in the 10th century, you've got the Muslim geographer Al-Ishtakri. He claimed that the white Khazars were so strikingly handsome with their reddish hair, white skin and blue eyes that they formed a striking contrast with their black Khazar cousins who were swarthy, verging on the deep 
black Indian appearance. So look, my position is this, Mikey. We know that there's a large Jewish community living in Khazaria in the 8th, 9th and 10th centuries. And whether they were Jews in exile from elsewhere or native Khazars who'd converted to Judaism, either way, they were definitely a significant section of the population. There were substantial numbers. And as Khazaria broke up, this whole area that we were talking about in the episode, you know, straddling the Ukraine and the Crimea and southern Russia, as the medieval Khazar Empire fragmented and was overtaken by new foreign powers, so I think it's reasonable to surmise that much of this Jewish population must have dissipated, you know, either driven out or leaving of their own accord. And I don't think it's too much of a leap of faith to suggest that the various Jewish communities we find in Russia and Eastern Europe today, perhaps even those in Central Asia too, these communities, centuries later, it's my position that they must have had some sort of roots back with my heroes, the Khazars. Well, I'd, I don't think you're drawing too long a bow there at all, Paulie. Yes, the problem is, though, Mikey, the, the whole red hair and the red hair Jews debate is also linked with the ten lost tribes of Israel who were exiled by the Assyrians back in the midst of time. And unfortunately, it's also stuff that's been picked up by the neo-Nazis as yet another club to attack. So I think we're going to stop there rather than plunge down either of those rabbit holes. And that's not really a bad thing because we've actually got two other questions on the socials, which I think are just as interesting. Okay. Okay. So the first one is, did the Khazars have anything to do with the rhubarb road? Which leads to another question. What's the rhubarb road? All right. Okay. So the rhubarb road is one of these great trade routes in history, Mikey. Now, rhubarb, as you probably don't know, it actually has its origins over on the Tibetan plateau in Tibet. And from there, early on in its life, it spread into northwest China. Now, the Chinese were the first to use rhubarb as a medicine. Right. Yeah, and they used it to treat malaria, delirious speech, and of course, constipation. And it still works for that, quite frankly. <laughs> but it didn't take long before the rhubarb was being traded to the West, into Asia, into Europe, to be used as medicine there. In fact, we've got from the ancient Greek physician, Padanius Dioscorides, writing about it in his book, De Materia Medica. And we know that book was being used all over the ancient Mediterranean world. Indeed, rhubarb's reputation as a cure-all spreads so quickly across Europe, prices rise through the roof. According to the 10th century um, Arab physicians, Sarafian or Sarapian the Elder and Ibn Sina or Avicenna, we know that the finest quality rhubarb was more expensive than cinnamon or saffron. And Marco Polo even mentions it when he sees it growing prolifically in China's Gansu province during his travels. Mate, I love rhubarb, but can we get back to the rhubarb road? All right, OK, so the rhubarb road itself. Well, it seems, Mikey, that no one liked rhubarb more than the Russians. <laughs> in fact, we've got a letter from Catherine the Great to Prince Henry of Prussia from 1776, and she writes, and this is a quote, You know, my friend, that it, Russian rhubarb, is the best which one can find in all Europe. In fact, it doesn't take long, you know, supply and demand for almost all of the rhubarb being traded to make its way to Moscow. And so that section of the Silk Roads... Oh, the arm that had been controlled by the Khazars back in their day. Yes, that northern section leading from the Black Sea, that becomes known amongst the traders as the Rhubarb Road. <laughs> so much so, Mikey, that when Peter the Great comes to the throne at the end of the 17th century, he decides to set up a state monopoly in rhubarb controlling all the trade of the plant. And he goes so far that he ends up doing a deal with the Chinese, whereby instead of exporting the stuff through Central Asia and all the Silk Road markets, China will now agree to pack all their plants and send them north directly to the border with Siberia. 
and sell them there to Russian traders and Russian traders alone. And we've got these amazing custom books from Tobolsk, which is the old Siberian capital. They register in the mid-17th century the sale of these incredible amounts of rhubarb during the period at an eye-watering price of 18 rubles per pound. That's not a lot of rhubarb for your ruble. <laughs> and then back in Moscow, we've got this Swedish merchant, Johan de Roders. He writes a secret report to the Swedish government recounting the arrival of this super expensive rhubarb from Siberia to be then shipped to Western Europe through the port of Archangel to the tune of nearly 5,000 500 pounds by weight annually. That's a lot of rhubarb, mate. A lot of rhubarb. Okay, so what you're saying is that by the end of things, the Russians have set up an express route for their rhubarb. But originally, originally it all started with the rhubarb road. And that was this stretch in the old Silk Road network that the Khazars had set up all those centuries before. That's right, Mikey. Yes, it's on exactly the same route using exactly the same network that the Khazars established and nurtured during the 7th, 8th and 9th centuries. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Catherine the Great, because I also talked about her in that episode, which, of course, got a few questions on the old socials. Yeah. And look, we know there's a lot of stories out there about Catherine. A lot of them are, are, are false. Some are true. But today I thought I'd tell a story about her husband. Right. Peter. Peter, now, yes. Now, you watch that TV show, The Great, which I think, Unfortunately. It's, a, I think it's a lot of fun. But if you, if you watch that, Peter comes across as this sort of oversexed man boy. Well, to be honest, he gets off lightly. So you have to remember, Catherine was a witty, intelligent, outgoing and well-educated. Mm. And Peter was, well, more than just a bit odd, and particularly <laughs> in the bedroom, because that's where he kept his main obsession, mm. uh, toy soldiers. Oh. He had a chest full of them stashed under his bed and would drag them out and play with them when no one was around. Okay. Look, I, I know that a lot of grown men like to play with toy soldiers. I, I, I'm not mocking them, but, you know, Peter was emperor, and he was really into it. When I say he was into it, well, it's best demonstrated by a bizarre incident that occurred very early on in the royal marriage. Mm. I'm not making this up. I got this from John C. Abbott's book, The Empire of Russia, Its Rise and Present Power. Mm. He retells Catherine's description of one particularly disturbing visit to her new husband's rooms. And this is a quote from Catherine the Great. Mm. One day, when I went into the apartment of His Imperial Highness, I beheld a great rat which had been hanged. <laughs> With all the paraphernalia of an execution, I asked what all this meant. He told me that the rat had committed a great crime, which, according to the laws of war, deserved capital punishment. So, mate, the act of treason committed by this poor rat, mm -hmm. it had knocked over some of Peter's carefully placed toy soldiers and had even been so disrespectful as to chew off the heads of some of the toy soldiers. Peter's dog had captured the rat, at which point, Peter put the poor thing on trial and found it guilty of high treason. <laughs> he actually conducted a full mock trial in his bedroom. <laughs> Catherine would later recall, in justification of the rat, it may at least be said that he was hung without having been questioned or heard in his own defence. But it doesn't stop with the toy soldiers in the bedroom. Okay. Peter would often dress up the household servants in military garb mm -hmm. and make them endure hours of mock parades up and down the palace courtyard. Okay. He even attempted on more than one occasion to get his new wife to dress up as a soldier, okay, so he could inflict a military drill on her. Suffice to say, Catherine politely refused. <laughs> Look, there was always a sense of inevitable doom around this union. On one side, you have a man who, when not playing out his childish military fantasies, was usually to be found drunk and highly argumentative. 
And on the other side, you have a woman who, well, for years maintained a witty and mutually enthusiastic pen pal friendship with none other than Voltaire. All right, time for just one more question, Mikey, and it's from a listener asking if you could shed any light on the other recent Russian invasions we mentioned, yeah, particularly that one of Ossetia and South Ossetia in Georgia. Right, because let's be honest, they never really got that much attention in the media at the time. No, they didn't. And we're back in 2008 now, Mikey, and I have to say, I do have a little bit of a story to tell here, because this was back in my Silk Rose writing days, and I was doing a new book for Trailblazer, and I was on a bike ride in 2008 from Istanbul in Turkey through to Beijing. Now, when you say bike ride, I, I know you, Paulie. We're talking push bike, not motorbike. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So we're on bicycles, okay? And it's 11,000 kilometres in 110 days. And the organisers asked me, you know, if I could plot them the best route, one which would, you know, if I could, stick to the flat bits as much as possible. I can't believe I haven't heard this story before, mate, but, but, but go on. <laughs> OK, so in return for plotting the route, the guys gave me a free ride as far as Uzbekistan. And the route from Istanbul I chose was to go around the southern shores of the Black Sea as much as possible and head into Georgia as a means of crossing the Caucasus. Yeah, that doesn't sound very flat. <laughs> yeah, I know, but the problem was at the time, Iran didn't want to let us in either. So we decided this was going to be the best route. So we cycled across Turkey through eastern Turkey, which, by the way, Mike, is really interesting. Lots of Armenian history in there, too. And we got to the Georgian border, just about in line with the Georgian province of South Ossetia. Now, the problem was, this being August 2008, we arrived just at the same time as a whole army of Russian tanks, which are piling in over the border from North Ossetia and supporting the breakaway factions fighting to secede their way out from under Georgian control. So what did you do, mate? <laughs> well, a few of us were keen to make a dash for it and try and cycle as quickly as possible to Tbilisi and then out the other side into Azerbaijan. But I'm glad to say discretion did get the, the better side of valour. And instead, we flew over into Azerbaijan, retraced our way back up to the Georgian border and then carried on cycling our way into Central Asia. Folks, Paulie, I'm going to say this with all the respect of the world. Paul is a bit of a nutcase. <laughs> that, well, that might be true, mate. But the key for me, Mikey, and the key, I think, for our story, trying to make sense of what's happening in the Ukraine right now, you know, this happened in 2008. So effectively, 14 years ago, Russia annexed part of Georgia's sovereign territory and the West did nothing about it. And then for the same amount of time, it's been sponsoring the breakaway Transnistria state out of Moldova and the West has done nothing about it. And in 2014, Russia annexed the Crimea. And the West, and did, the West did, did nothing no, about, about it. it. Right, yeah. Yeah. So should we really be surprised if Putin didn't fancy his chances of jumping in one more time for another quick steal? All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right. And always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist. And you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there. Lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. <laughs> right, which brings us to next week. And next week, folks, it's the real D'Artagnan. What's the connection between Alexander Dumas and Nelson Bay Public School? Mm -hmm.